All right, guys. Today on today's episode of the Trade Busters podcast, I'm excited to have another special guest. Um, I have with me Jason Buck. He is the founder of Mutiny Funds, um, also the host of Mutiny Fund Podcast, which I listen to. It's a great podcast. And one of the uh, duo that hosts uh, Pirates of Finance, also another great show to follow. And um, But with that, uh, Jason, I know this was kind of short notice. That I just kind of randomly DM'd you, but you know, thank you so much for uh, taking some time to to come on the show. No worries, uh, David. Happy to be here. As always, uh, nothing I say is investment advice. Um, do your own work. You know, hire an investment professional. This is all for entertainment purposes only. Yeah, yeah. I usually do the same thing at the beginning. So, <laughs> informational, educational purposes. You know, nothing to be construed as investment advice. You know, with that out of the way. Jason, you know, I apologize. And I've been following you for a while, but I don't actually remember where I first came across your stuff. I don't know if it was from the derivative or because I followed Corey for a while. And of course, you guys do a lot of stuff together. But why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and, you know, how you got to where you are and, and the kind of things you're working on now? Sure. So um, I've been trading, you know, options on my own for better part of two decades now, I started trading, you know, some VIX kind of relative value intramarket spreads in like 2011, 2012, around that time. But the grander part of my journey was actually, I'm more of an entrepreneur. Um, so I, you've done all kinds of, you know, entrepreneurial endeavors, different businesses. Um, but going into 2007, 2008, I owned a commercial real estate development company in Charleston, South Carolina. So um, that was my first uh, larger business where I helped develop some of that King Street corridor. If you've ever been to Charleston, um, and then coming out of the the great financial crisis, uh, it was such a painful event for me to lose money for friends and family. Um, and then to add insult to injury, I was actually speaking of uh, options in general, I was actually shorting the markets, but managed to lose money. So I think everybody on their options journey knows what this feeling is like is like, as part of a commercial real estate developer, and, you know, selling apartments and, and retail spaces and office spaces, is I knew who all the the problem lenders were. And the problem banks. So coming out of like 2007, I started, you know, using put options to short those banks, but I didn't understand all of my Greek exposures yet. So even though I was directionally correct, as you know, it doesn't matter because you're you're paying for that Vega. And so I managed to lose money shorting the banks because of the tenors and the uh, and the Vega I was paying for, even though I was potentially directionally correct. So it was the to add insult to injury, I had the uh, the blow up from the GFC uh, of what that did to my my you know, commercial real estate development company, then to use my personal finances to try to short the banks and lose money on that, is it created an immense amount of pain. So since the GFC, I've been on a kind of journey, one, to learn, you know, how to trade options even better. Two, like I said, I started, you know, came across the idea of trading, you know, S&P versus VIX or, you know, E-mini versus VIX in the future space. But more importantly, um, it was a 10 plus year journey to figure out there had to be a way to hedge entrepreneurial risk. As a lifelong entrepreneur, you know, I'm more worried about, you know, what goes on, you know, as an entrepreneur, you have to project out two to five years, you know, kind of into the future. And that's how, especially if you're in real estate development or any sort of business in general. And part of that projection of two to five years is you need everything to kind of remain constant in those projections. And so part of that is global liquidity. So if during that time frame when you're building out your business or building out a real estate development project, if global liquidity dries up, you're absolutely screwed. So I figured there had to be a way to like hedge entrepreneur risk because the the pain of the GFC was so great for me. It, it led me down that rabbit hole for the better part of a decade. And so I figured there just had to be a way to hedge that. So that's why I spent, you know, a good, you know, my late 20s, early 30s into mid 30s working on. And like I said, I, I figured out how to do that for myself. But at the same time, 
it started to drive me nuts that, you know, it's very difficult for others to do that. And so my partner, Taylor Pierce, and I kind of got together um, in 2018, and we were talking about these different ideas of entrepreneurial put options, which he kind of coined that term. Um, we also talked about our love for like Taleb books or a Chris Cole white paper or Mark Spitznagel. And what we eventually came around to is, you know, we're probably better entrepreneurs than we are traders. And, you know, these, these kind of tail risk hedging, long volatility, et cetera, has never been available to retail traders or retail investors. Um, and so we figured out there had to be a way to solve that. So we figured, you know, let's put our heads together and see if we can solve this space. And the hard part about long volatility, tail risk, et cetera, is there's a lot of path dependencies to a sell-off. So we believe in ensemble approaches. And so we set out to build what is now a, what people call a hedge fund. Some people call it a fund to fund. Some would call it a multi-strap platform. But what it really technically is, is a commodity pool operation. And what it allows us to do is to provide access to accredited retail investors for a check size starting at $100,000 US uh, to have access to a, right now an ensemble of 14 long volatility managers. But at the same time, um, for the last decade or two, I've been building these total portfolio solutions for myself and my family. And the idea around that is it comes from Harry Brown's permanent portfolio and that kind of four quadrant model that Ray Dalio copied. And so to me, it was like the missing piece or the cornerstone piece was long volatility. And so that was the piece we built first. But in the end, we wanted to provide a total portfolio solution for clients. And that's when we came up with our cockroach fund. And I'm sure we're going to get into all that. And I just went sure. on a long diatribe. So I'll just I'll just pause there. Yeah, no, so much good stuff. And like I said, I told you, I didn't remember how I found you, but I definitely remember when I started wanting to have you on the show because a lot of things you say really resonate with the way I think, you know, path dependency and, mm -hmm. um, you know, volatility, um, tax and ensembles and all that. And, and like I said, we're going to kind of dive into each of the um, ideas and products behind them. But I guess for Mutiny Funds, why don't you give us just a, a brief overview of the offerings you have from a high level? And then we can kind of touch on each of them and kind of the philosophy behind them. Yeah, so it starts with this idea of permanent portfolio that Harry Brown came up with in the early 1970s. And what the idea with the permanent portfolio is the four quadrant model is you have to have the four quadrants on the axes of growth of inflation. You know, at any given point, we're either in growth or recession and we're in inflation or deflation. And it's kind of like a you know Venn diagram. They can cross over between each other a little bit. But that's kind of the four quadrant model for a global macro environment. And like I said, Ray Dalio kind of copied that, leveraged up the bond side to make it risk parity, and then he called it an all-weather portfolio. But you know, ours goes back to the idea that Harry Brown had. And I think if Harry Brown were alive today, I was like, well, what are the tools and techniques that we can use in modern portfolio construction to kind of modernize his theories? And so that's what we kind of came up with at, um, at Muni Funds. And like I said, our flagship product is called Cockroach. And obviously we called it cockroach because everybody told everybody told us not to call it a cockroach, but uh, it's very visceral and you get the idea, right? It survives anything. And that's that's our goal. And so the idea with our total portfolio with cockroach is that for a quadrant model, you have we use global stocks for growth. Um, we use global bonds and income for deflation or disinflationary environments. We use long volatility and tail risk for recessions. And we use commodity trend advisors for inflation. Uh, we also sprinkle in around the edges what we call our fiat hedges, where we hold a little bit of gold, uh, both futures and and physical, and a little bit of uh, cryptocurrencies as well, just a tiny bit, um, just in case more like fiat hedges for you know really cataclysmic type events. But the idea is we're trying to build the least shitty portfolios. 
everybody else is trying to optimize everything. Everybody thinks they can, you know, build the most perfect portfolio, but it's all based on a back test. And unfortunately, we have to live on a walk forward basis. And the back test is looking in the rearview mirror. So we try to be like very robust in our portfolio construction. And within all of those four macro quadrants, we believe in ensemble approaches. And that helps us through diversification within each of those buckets to make sure we capture a, a much more like a beta-like signal from those buckets um, through the dispersion of returns of individual managers. Like I said, in our, our long volatility bucket, you know, we have 14 managers and there's a large dispersion of returns in there. And that's what we're trying to harness that beta-like signal through that ensemble approach. And very similar with commodity trend advisors as well. There's a lot historically been a huge dispersion of returns there as well. And through diversification, we feel like we can, we can harness some of that dispersion and create like those beta-like signals. But the entire thing is at a really high level, all we're trying to do is compare is uh, pair up offense and defense. Our our like tagline is offense plus defense wins investment championships. And most people, when they talk to their financial advisor or they look at their portfolio or their four hundred one k, it looks like they have broad diversification, but they're usually one hundred percent in offensive assets. And we like to pair up our offense uh, and defensive assets in equal proportion. Right. Uh, you just on your website when you go there, right? Offense wins games, defense wins championships. Um, you know, and that's right there, the tagline, like you said. And I guess it's part of that, like you said, having the diversification, having the defense is what lets you, you said, be more robust or kind of weather any kind of uh, economic situation, you know, if you will. Uh, now I'm guessing yeah, there's that's kind this, of the driving force. There's these ideas um, Ole Peters has put forward around ergodicity. And to put it simply, we used to call it sequencing risk. You know, most people, when they go to a financial advisor, will look at like a, a stock chart going back 100 years and they'll go, oh, it's up and to the right. You just buy and hold stocks forever. You know, that's what indexing and everybody tells you. But what they don't tell you is that the ensemble average of everybody of those 100 years looks great. But the whole point is you're end of one, you're an individual. And what is it going to look like during your time horizon? And that's, you know, a non-ergodic environment where your individual experience doesn't line up with the experience of, you know, hundreds of millions of people over a hundred years. And so you never know that, you know, stocks can be underwater for decades at a time. And you don't know if that's going to be during your peak earning years, during your retirement years, or when you need your money the most. And so this is why we try to use a robust combination of offense and defense, because what you really want with your savings is you want them to outpace inflation and be there when you need them most. And most people keep thinking about their savings as investments, and that allows you to take imprudent risks that could potentially hurt you for decades at a time. So I want to come back and have some more questions about the, the cockroach strategy. Sure. But um, down the line, you have uh, the trend strategy, and we don't have to get into the details of trend following. Like I had Andrew Bjorn, for example, we had an episode on sure. that. But my question was, uh, so that's basically that particular offering is a pure trend following exposure. And that's the one that ensembles kind of various managers. Yeah. The, to to give us a high level is like we try to, you know, suggest to most of our clients that they go in the cockroach portfolio because it's that total portfolio solution. Which includes the but, trend following. Which includes, yeah. Right. So it includes stocks, bonds, trend, volatility, and fiat hedges, right? And but if we have individual clients that would prefer just like the trend piece or the vol piece, we offer those as standalone products. So in the trend piece, like you're saying, it's like it's commodity trend advisors. And the idea around trend following is they're going to trade, you know, 60 plus markets around the world um, in a trend following fashion. And historically, the problem with trend following, if you ever looked at it over decades, um, there's a large dispersion of returns. Whatever the best manager was, you know, in this year or next year might be the worst manager in the following years. So there's huge dispersions in returns. I mean, we're talking any given year, there can be 
you know, 30% difference in returns amongst managers. And part of that is different look back, short, medium, long-term, different trading styles, short, medium, long-term. You know, are they looking at breakouts? Are they looking at moving average crossovers? Are they trading pure commodities or have they limited their commodities to raise AUM? Are they only trading financial products now? So there's a lot of different ways to slice and dice trend following. So we believe in by creating an ensemble approach um, and really tranching them out by look backs and trading styles, we're trying to build that ensemble that gives you a much more robust uh, beta-like return to to this whole CTA universe. And the volatility strategy, is that specifically tail hedging? Is it more like near data delta one or is it a, also kind of ensemble approach as far as volatility? Sure. It's a, it's an ensemble approach for many reasons. One, when my partner and I originally got together, uh, he was looking to invest in a long volatility fund. And part of that was I, I started explaining to him different path dependencies and what can, you know, this is why maybe one fund is not necessarily going to cover it, right? You can have different environments where either you have vague expansion, gamma expansion, you know, or directional deltas. It really depends on the different markets. Like to just give a, a very simplified, simplified example is in March of 2020, you know, when you go from a low volatility environment to a high volatility environment, obviously, you know, your Vega explodes. And so it's a good good time to have, you know, cheap, you know, Vega on on as positions, as most people did on the like a tail risk fund would, you know, and, and just to define tail risk, tail risk historically has been maybe buying, you know, negative 20% attachment point, you know, tail risk puts and just rolling them on a monthly or quarterly basis is the way I would simplify defining tail risk. Um, but then if you have an environment like uh, 2022, where you have that slow grind down, you might want to be closer to like at the money gamma positions where you can be restriking often and really harnessing as you have that slow grind down. That's not going to really pop any of that implied volatility. So you want to think about that. And then the other thing you can do as well is, is, is just directionally short using Delta One futures. And so you can just use the short Delta positions. So the way we think about constructing the book in general is, you know, we are semi in the camp of like Spitzenangle and Taleb of like that classical tail risk hedging, you know, and like you should just, the idea of the classical tail risk hedging firm to Levin Spitznagel to simplify is, you know, you could hold 97% long S&P beta, and then you use 3% for deep out of the money tail hedges. And basically you had to re-up that, you know, insurance or that premium every year for like 10 years straight while you're waiting for a sell-off. And the problem is though with that, even though we may agree with it, is behaviorally, most people are unwilling to do that. And as we had famously with CalPERS, you know, in Q1 of 2020, they cut their their uh, allocation to Universal because they got they were tired of that negative line item. They were tired of paying that insurance, you know, that premium bleed for for a decade plus. And so the way we construct a portfolio is even though we, you know, we like that tail risk style, the other style is like that what's considerably been called like it's gained popularity only in really the last 10 years, but like long volatility. So the idea with long volatility is two ways to think about it is people are opportunistically. Um, buying both tails, both puts and calls, but they might not be in the market 100% of the time. So maybe they're in the market, you know, 40 to 70% of the time, but they're basically looking for, let's use a forest fire analogy, a forest fire to spark off. So they're using their algos and their detections and their filters to say, to go, okay, there's the wind speeds picking up, you know, it hasn't rained in months. There's some dry kindling here. Maybe now it's time to put on some protection, right? That's part of long volatility. The other part of long volatility that I referenced earlier is more of that implied volatility or that vague expansion. Um, so that's another way to look at, you know, tail risk and then long volatility is just maybe a little bit more opportunistic version of tail risk. And then the other piece we kind of, the other two pieces we look at, one is uh, volatility relative value. And basically that's a, a big broad universe of institutional managers that really trade relative value volatility. And you're basically, 
a simplified version would be that what I talked about, what I worked on in you know, the you know almost a decade ago, is the idea of you're pairing off, let's say, SMP versus VIX, right? Or the E mini. It's it historically was called the simplified version was called the short, short, long, long, where you would go short VIX futures and short S&P futures, or you go long VIX futures and long S&P futures. And you're you're betting on that negative correlation. And it was about getting your ratios right. And the idea was a lot of times, a lot of managers don't want to admit this, but you're basically also just trying to isolate the roll down yield in VIX or the roll up yield if you're in backwardation. So that's another way of like having kind of a, a market neutral way of, of playing volatility or long volatility, because you're trying to isolate isolate the VIX. So when we're constructing a portfolio, we prefer to have the bulk of the portfolio just buying options because when you're buying options, you know what your your risk is, right? So it's a bleed to death. It's a death by a thousand paper cuts. The thing is, though, with those when you're just buying options, you don't know what your return is going to be because you don't know what environment you're coming from to what environment you're going to. You don't know if you're going to monetize it perfectly. There's a lot of risk there. But the bulk of our portfolio is just buying options. The problem, like I said, with buying options is you have that deterministic bleed with buying options. So to make up for that bleed, this is where we use um the volatility relative value managers because that sort of pairs trade even though it's implicitly short volatility you can position a little bit to be long ball but with a pairs trade like that and like i said maybe isolating roll yield you should hopefully derive some income from that and the little bit of income from that is the idea is it hopefully covers a little bit of that premium bleed on the long optionality portion then the other piece we add in there is that the future side like i said you could just trade delta one futures and the idea why you want delta one futures is you know, in a March 2020 event, when you have that implied volatility expand, and then you have to roll those positions if you're worried about a second leg down, as you know, you're going to pay up tremendously for that. Right. So if you're just shorting the the market indices around the world with, with the Delta One futures, you can just directionally short. And we use uh, intraday managers for for you know, basically intraday trend following to short those market indices around the world. So it's, it's a combo of all of those, right? We're using long volatility. We're using classical tail risk. We're using vol relative value. We're using the uh, the Delta One futures. So we're using kind of, you know, four different strategy styles across kind of three different um, market environments. And we believe, you know, by putting that all together, we're trying to create this ensemble that is a, at the end of the day, hopefully creates a a, a beta signal from that long volatility tail risk book. And that program is kind of a component of the cockroach strategy yeah. as well. So, and then and then finally you guys have, you know, it's pretty straightforward. What's called volatility plus stocks. Is that just holding stocks for pure beta and then overlay some of the volatility? Is that just one for yeah. one, like one beta, like just hundred percent allocated with the volatility yeah, the, on top? The idea with the long volatility stocks is, you know, when it was funny, we actually were we built this long before we saw this 2022 event when you start to see stocks and bonds become correlated again and people start really freaking out. And so our idea was uh, you want that structurally negatively correlated exposure that you can get from long volatility and tail risk. That's what you want to combine with uh, stocks. And going back to like Spitznagel and Taleb, right? Like you could actually be more comfortable being uh, holding more exposure to long beta if you have those structurally negatively correlated hedges in place. So that's the idea is we just take our long volatility ensemble, 100% exposure to that long volatility ensemble. And then we overlay 100% exposure to the S&P 500 futures. And we roll that internally on a monthly basis. So it's just long beta overlaid with the with the long volatility ensemble. And then going back kind of to the, the permanent portfolio ideas, like Harry Brown used stocks, bonds, gold, and cash. Instead of cash, we just feel our long volatility ensemble is better. And instead of gold for inflation, we believe that CTAs have a higher beta to inflation. So that's the that's why I mean the modern version of the Harry Brown permanent portfolio. Right. And in the futures you roll, are you trying to target just basically one X notional exposure to? Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
Got it. Okay. So, you know, again, that's kind of the overview of all the products. And I know like you, uh, for the most part, if, if people aren't selectively or tactically trying to do something, you're basically saying encouraging the cockroach because that's sort of like the total portfolio solution. But like, how do you, how do you envision people using that product? Is it meant to be, hey, just obviously we never say put all your eggs in one basket, but is that meant to be right. like a, a bulk of your allocation? Is it meant to uh, kind of complement something else? Or like, how do you, I don't know, how do you, how do you see that? as uh fitting in with yeah this is always a conundrum conundrum for us because um we essentially built taylor and i built what what didn't exist that we wanted and so to us like we call cockroach a total portfolio solution so when people ask my my ego says yes you should put a hundred percent of your savings with us because that's a total portfolio solution right we built out this ensemble and not only that it's like yes it's one product but it has over 50 line items in there before we even get into the sub-manager line items. So you have the idea. It's like, it's broadly diversified and ensemble approach that we've been talking about. Even the even the stocks and bonds, we use global stocks and bonds and, and everything else. So we have all these little line items here and there. So to me, it's like, uh, I, I mean, I wouldn't, I'm so proud of it. I say, yes, you should put 100% of your savings in there. Um, but as obviously as, as long vol guys by nature, we do view that you should have some diversification away from any, you know, one manager risk or whatever. But the other thing we talk about is when you build a broadly diversified portfolio. So when Dalio talks about, you know, the ideal would be 16 uncorrelated return streams, right? One, I don't think that's possible. We can get into that. <laughs> but the idea would be if you could find that your return stream would probably be like three to 4%. Now, granted, your vol would probably be like three to 5%. And your drawdown might be like three to 8%, you know, so you have a very robust portfolio, but your return stream is not sexy. So to make it sexy, you would have to lever up that portfolio. So we actually use that implicit leverage that we can get in futures and options. This is why we built our product as a, as a CPO, as a commodity pool operation, because we can use that implicit leverage, a few, uh, leverage that you can get in futures and options. So we actually have our portfolio at a gross level uh, for the cockroach is levered up 2.2x. So instead of being 25% each of the four quadrant buckets, it's actually 50% each. So we're 50% global stocks, 50% global bonds, 50% our long vol ensemble, and 50% our CTA ensemble. And then we overlay the 20% in gold and cryptos. It's 16% gold, 4% crypto. These percentages are basically notional exposure, right? To the underlying yeah. order. Okay. Yeah, more or less. And so that's the notional exposure. And why I say we use that leverage is because that makes the return stream a little bit sexier, but more important. So people pay more attention, honestly. <laughs> but then the, the second part is that it allows you to be much more capital efficient. So what I tried to propose to clients is the way I would think about this is we are trying to create a liquid portfolio that's kind of like all the world's liquid asset classes. And like I said earlier, you just want your savings to outpace inflation. And, and my theory is that if you trade all the world's asset classes and rebalance frequently, that is like the global inflation rate, right? And we can use a little bit of leverage to hopefully outpace that global inflation rate. I don't care what the government says is the inflation rate. But what we are missing is all those private asset classes, right? Like especially, let's say, like commercial real estate or timberlands or farmlands or those sorts of things. So what we tell clients, especially when you're working uh, with wealthier clients is, you know, only allocate 50% to like the cockroach fund. And that gives you your liquid portfolio. And then the other 50% you can use for these illiquid private assets. And this creates this beautiful symbiotic feedback loop because the problem with a lot of those private assets is they don't have the granularity that you're looking for with liquid markets, right? Like you can't put, you know, 
$273,000 into real estate and get it to work tomorrow. It's just not going to happen, right? right? And then to get out, it's, it's going to take some time. So knowing that you have those, those time inconsistencies, if you could overlay it with a liquid portfolio, that that's your ability to kind of, um, if you needed to tap any liquidity, you have it there at all times. But the liquidity from that is feeding this illiquid private portfolio. And then when you make gains in the illiquid private, you put it back into the liquid too, and it cascades down. So they create a nice like symbiotic feedback loop. And a lot of people like that because um, people, even they as they become wealthy or get retire or semi-retire, they really like to dabble and play in those those private asset classes, whether it's you know real estate or you know doing their own like micro PE funds or VC or stuff like that. And there's a there's a nice symbiotic relationship with having a liquid portfolio combined with those illiquid assets. Okay, and and you touched on something I was going to ask about, which is you know the leverage component. And um, how did you settle on that? Are you basically like trying to target a certain volatility or, you know, because you're basically return stacking, right? Um, and so how do you think about that that capital constraint or why 2.2x, does that fluctuate? Is there a reason for that number? Sure. So a uh, couple of things. One, shout out to Corey Hofstein and Rodrigo Gordillo for return stacking. <laughs> yes, it's a great ab- name. Absolutely. Yes. But, and as my buddy Corey would say, it is uh, what we used to call portable alpha. You know, there's nothing new under the sun, but they they created a great branding and marketing. So that it's, it's beautifully done. Um, so yeah, that's the way we think about it is, you know, there is, we don't, I don't believe in like sharp ratios or volatility, right? Volatility is really variance. Volatility is not a measure of risk. It's just variance, right? And so what I worry about most as a as an entrepreneur or just a person is, you know, my returns are what I can eat at the end of the day, right? So it's about absolute return for us. And the the ratio I worry about most is what we call MAR ratio. And the idea of MAR ratio is it's your, your CAGR over the very long term divided by your max drawdown. Right. And if you to me, the holy grail is getting that as close to one as possible. I think there's only a handful, a hand like and it might be less than a handful of hedge funds that have been around for more than like three or four decades that have gotten close or exceeded a MAR ratio of one. And that to me is like that's why that's the holy grail. So I don't pay that close of attention to vol or variance. I mean, granted, we we kind of run in that. And the other thing is about vol and variance, it fluctuates too. So people that say they target it are kind of lying to you because like they'll go, yeah, we do a 15 vol. And then you might check on it. They might be at an eight vol or an 18 or a 22 vol. It's like on average, we're a 15 vol. And so also if you vol target, a lot of times you're you're going, you're selling and buying when you shouldn't be, right? Like this is what happens a lot when like risk parity funds in March of 2020, you know, they ha- when vol picks up, they have to sell everything and they're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. So they're accelerating into those drawdowns. And then when the market maybe, you know, V-shapes or K-shapes recover like it did, then they're they're underexposed to that re- to the because now they're vol targeted to a higher vol level. Now they can't even be exposed to stocks as they're ripping back up. So we do not on a monthly, weekly, daily or any of those basis quarterly attenuate our portfolio to variance or vol because of those very reasons. We just worry about what our what our you know return to drawdown metric is. We worry about drawdown. We think returns are going to take care of themselves. So we're obsessive with drawdown. And the problem with drawdowns too in Mar ratio is if you read your market wizards or anything, is like your future, your largest drawdown is always ahead of you. That's just volatility in the arrow of time. So that always has me paranoid, is knowing our our max drawdown is still ahead of us. And so no matter what your max drawdown is historically, even if it's over like two decades, you still know you could exceed your max drawdown. So it makes us really paranoid about drawdowns and we figure returns will will take care of themselves. Okay, so why 2x or 2.2x in our scenario? Once again, it was like, (laughs) I think an unlevered version of what we do is fine. It's just you have to leverage it up for that sexiness and, and provide capital efficiency for our clients. 
And so 2x is good for us, we think, because, you know, those drawdowns are fairly manageable. I think you want to, you know, historically, if you look at, um, you know, across a lot of financial literature, people tend to really capitulate after like 20% drawdowns. So um, you never know, but you're trying to keep it at like 20% or less is the idea. You know, you can't know for certain if you're going to do that, but that's what you, that's what you got to kind of worry about to, in, in my mind is that's where people tend to really freak out and, and do really dumb things where they crystallize those losses and tend not to get back in for the recovery. Um, so it's behavioral, thinking about through all those sorts of things. Now, if um, I talk to some of my friends that think that you can use like, you know, all these derivations of Kelly criterion for like looking at portfolio math and really levering it up, I would never do such a thing. But if you ran a portfolio like ours, I think, you know, I've seen any numbers between, you know, five to eight X, you know, would be maybe full Kelly. And so, you know, half Kelly in that like three to six X range. So like we're still way below you know, half Kelly would probably like a quarter of Kelly if you were able to actually fill out, figure out Kelly criterion, which I would argue is not possible. It's funny talking about all those things that we always nerd out over to like the Kelly right, right. ratio and all that. And, and yeah, you know, the thing is like, and, and I like looking at the more ratio and uh, I'm always analyzing what we do. And, you know, speaking on to like investor expectation, like if someone were to like, you know, you're talking to a new investor and they're like, you know, what, what, and obviously past performances and reflect future right. returns and nothing don't guarantees, yada, yada. But like, if they're saying like, what should I expect? or know what to set my expectations. Like, cause people look at, right. You, you talk about being diversified and you know, it's absolute return, you know, you're not necessarily benching benchmarking against S and P, but everyone's going to benchmark you against S and P no matter what. Right. You just can't avoid it. So, and then when they do that, they're like, okay, well, if I'm not even going to be, you know, six to nine percent or whatever you know the the real real return long-term kager is and then right. you know you get all those kind of things so like do you think about like you know would you tell them like hey you know we you know more ratio of one means you know probably 10 percent return with max drawdown 10 percent or 15 percent 15 percent like do you tell them anything or do you have something in your mind that you're kind of aiming for yeah the, the hard part with this question is is twofold uh, one with compliance, I can't really talk too many numbers and sure. then two, but even outside of that, I, I honestly, I, we try to be as honest as we can with clients because we just try to solve our own problems. So we try to be transparent about it. It's like, you never really know what those are going to be. And, and we don't try to make false promises. And like I said, back tests are a rear view mirror looking exercise, right? And you don't know necessarily on a walk forward basis. But with that said, the reason why we use that 2X or 2.2X uh, leverage is because we think then that out should outpace S&P historically, at least. You know, if you use a back test and caveat emperor back tests are not their hypothetical returns, you know, don't mean future returns. But the idea, though, is that's why we have that leverage in there is because that makes it in that range of kind of like S&P returns. But more importantly, you know, the, the rough heuristic I always use for back tests is take anybody's back test and chop the returns in halves and double the drawdown. You know, that'll give you at least a better idea of what it's going to look. That is so that's, conservative. That's 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 the way. Well, and that's with like a semi-diversified strategy where if you were like if you're selling optionality i would probably 5x the drawdowns right like before like that would be my like that's very conservative but that's the way i would look at it but that said what's interesting though is like if you have a super broadly diversified robust portfolio without like ours is like you can have a a tighter band of what those expectations are so even though normally i would say you know cut the returns in half double the drawdown that's on a singular strategy if I'm combining dozens of singular strategies, I have a better idea if I do a back test for like 30 years, I can be a little bit more confident that I will, I'll, I'll have a tighter range of outcomes 
than if I had a singular strategy. So that gives me a little bit more confidence in it. Um, but the idea is, you know, in a back test, once again, I'm trying to hit that more ratio of one. So, you know, if we can get pretty close there in a back test, doesn't mean we're going to get it moving forward. Um, but that'd be the way we think about it. Okay. And that's why yeah. we try to manage expectations that way too, is like, this is kind of what you're looking at. And, but more importantly, it's like in a, in a gross sense of like, uh, like 30,000 foot view is like I said, at the beginning is like, we need to stop treating our savings as investments. Like you're going to get rich at like your job or your business. Right. And savings are left over whatever you have left over after consumption that you can't put back into your business. So you should be more conservative with those. You should, you shouldn't be looking to get rich off your savings. And I know this is going to sound horrible to people that are trying to be DIY traders, but maybe you could treat that as your business and not your necessarily your savings. But that's, that's just the honest truth. And so to me, it's like I said at the beginning, it's like, as long as your savings can outpace inflation and be there when you do the most, because you've reduced your drawdowns, re hopefully reduce the duration of your drawdowns. Those are more important than whatever your return stream is going to be, or, or having some sort of you know sexy investment that out hurdles S and P. Like the one thing that drives me nuts, sorry, this is a slight tangent is you see all the time, everybody goes, well, hedge, hedge funds underperform the S&P 500 index. And I'm like, no, they don't. Like we were not one, we're not comparing apples to apples because one, a hedge fund is just an like, it's like an LLC. It's just a bucket for things like hedge funds do a lot of different things. It just depends on what kind of hedge fund we're talking about. And then two, everybody's just talking about their, their nominal returns. They're not even talking about their compounded returns. They're talking about nominal returns. And then they're not talking about the drawdowns, right? Like if S&P historically had like, an 8% annualized with a 50% drawdown and a hedge fund had a 6% return with a 10% drawdown, people are going to go hedge funds underperformed. And that's just nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. And on another note, you know, managing investor expectations, right? When you're talking about, it sounds great to have an uncorrelated asset or a strategy and no one will say anything when the market's down and you're up, but they'll always right. say something when the market's up and you're down, you know, and do you, do you get that still or, do you, do you guys try to really stay in front of that or educate, you know, the investors and, and just like I said, keep ahead of that. And so you don't necessarily get those kind of calls or comments or whatever. Yeah. Well, there's two, there's two pieces to that. And one, I'll start with uh, what I said before about Ray Dalio saying like you want 16 uncorrelated return streams and why I don't think that's possible is at a, at a simplified level, there's just really three correlations, right? You're correlated with S and P you're uncorrelated or you're negatively correlated. Right. And right. almost all asset classes are offense and they're highly correlated with S and P. That's what we talk about. Correlations go to one in, in a March, 2020 event. The CTA trend followers based on the strategy are uncorrelated to S and P 500. And then if you buy put options against the S&P, that's structurally negatively correlated. Those are your three correlations. Like everything's going to fall in those three buckets. But like to what you're pointing out too, is what's even scarier that people don't really want to deal with the obvious is like, if you have a truly uncorrelated strategy, it still means half the time it's going to be correlated with S&P, right? And like you just said, can you get lucky? Like, are you up when S&P is down or you might be down when S&P is down and you're just exacerbating those losses. So that's the problem with when you have uncorrelated strategies, you know, it can be 50-50. Um, on the, when we're talking to clients and managing expectations, there's several ways we think about this. We do something that's very unique. I cannot convince anybody, like if I went outside right now and went to one of the neighbors here and tried to convince them to invest in our strategy, it's never gonna happen. So I don't waste my time. We are looking for people that really understand what we do. Like you just said, I'm looking for people that, that you know maybe geek out about Mar Ratio or Kelly Criterion or know about Harry Brown's permanent portfolio or Ray Dalio's all weather portfolio. More importantly, we usually don't talk to clients unless they've read 
uh, you know, a Nassim Taleb book or a Mart Spitznagel book or, or a Chris Cole white paper. And so we're actually trying to fire clients as fast as possible. I know that sounds weird because in my in my business, everybody thinks all money is good money. We don't believe that at all. Is we that, make our investment. Is that an investor questionnaire? Have you read Taleb? Is that yeah, the, it's part of it. Is we it? have all these... We have all these Easter eggs like in our in our PPMs and everything. So people could find those too. But uh, but yeah, we make sure like we do really long. My, my partner, Taylor Pearson, is a phenomenal writer. He does very long form articles. Like we really make people um, jump through hoops, buy in, you know, all of those things. It's like we want them um, to just have been searching for a product just like ours for the longest time. And they're basically looking for us like water in the desert. So when they see what they do, we do, they go, oh my God, I've been trying to do this myself. I couldn't figure it out. Thank you so much. Like that's what it should be. When we find the right client, like we find that product market fit with the right clients for us, it's thank you so much, right? Because this is what, like you said, we built it for ourselves because it didn't exist and we wanted access to these kind of products. You know, that makes a lot of sense. And and, and it's smart, you know, you're working smarter basically and kind of reminds me, I didn't realize that was how you guys did this, but like, you know, I run like a Discord group for my, you know, my audience, my podcast, but like I have a very rigorous entrance exam. And it basically, you you will have had to listen to X number of episodes to understand it. And so I'll get like people who want to join and because they think, you know, I don't want followers, right? I want people who understand and have the same kind of curiosity and and at least get some level of, of sophistication. And so like I set this really high bar. And so that that makes sense because then you're kind of pre-qualifying the people that that uh, find you basically. So yeah, there's. There's a couple of things in there too. Like this is why you're podcasting, right? This is why I podcast and I do so many shows. It's like, if you watch hours and hours of my content and you don't like what I have to say, or you don't like me, great. Like you're not going to be an investor with us, right? But if you watch hours and hours of our content and you like what I say, like you're pre-qualifying those clients. So that's one way, like you're creating that relationship in in one to many. And then I know you're a fan of my buddy, Chris Dabba, the Messiah. And like what we're working on Chris on like, is like, can we create almost like all this education and games, and then you get certificates and that's a way to pre-qualify clients, right? Because they, they have to go through all these steps to, to really understand what you do. And you're just, what you're doing, it's, it's kind to yourselves and it's kind to your clients because you're just trying to make sure we're a good fit. That's all it is. Cause then you don't want to waste your time or their time. And so that's, that's the kind of the way we look at it. Okay. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, uh, I like that idea. And, and so one thing I want to touch upon is like, again, we went back to the idea of allocating and how, and, and you made the point about if somebody had wanted to allocate, you know, for example, half to the cockroach and half, they can leave that to their, you know, um, illiquid assets and they can kind of go back and forth depending on the, the profits and all that. Because I have in my show really talked about the benefits of capital efficiency and kind of return stacking. And that's why like, when I got into and learned about trend following, and now I own, you know, in my portfolio, some trend following, you know, ETFs, for instance, because that mm -hmm. gives me access to that type of asset class. And I'm essentially outsourcing the expertise. But at the same time, it lets me still trade options on kind of return stack on top of that. So, it, I mean, I know to the uneducated, it, it sounds like leverage on leverage on leverage. But right. again, if you're really using it right, right, it's not like you're trying to blow up. Right? If they're truly uncorrelated, it's really just trying to use the the capital efficiency. So, um, to that extent, because you guys, your structure right now is, are you just doing like an LS, uh, LP kind of hedge fund, or what kind of? Um, and we'll touch upon yeah. the difference between mutual funds, yeah. hedge funds, and all that. But how do you guys structure it? 
Yeah, we're technically, like I said, we're a commodity pool operation, but what it is, is it's, it's a uh, a private placement through a Delaware LLC. So it's very similar to, to hedge fund structure. It's LP investment. Um, what's also nice about that, actually, when you're talking about leverage is, you know, when people get scared about leverage, and I'll get to, to that in a second, is um, if you invest via commingled fund and that fund is trading futures and options, those managers can go into debit, but you as an LP in a commingled fund, you can't go into debit. So that's another nice thing about actually going through a commingled fund structure that people mm -hmm. don't realize. You're 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 truncating uh, the left tail, where as you know, with your trade futures and options, you can go into debit and owe your uh, FCM or your prime or the or the or the exchange some money. Um, and that's why it always scares people about futures and options. Um, but also, when you're talking about when you you can use like um, I almost said one of the names, which I can't do, is like one of the ETFs for like uh, trend following. Uh, there, what we're trying to do is what we're saying is we're solving the dead cash problem. Like you're able to create return stacking or capital efficiency because you're trading options in house for yourself, right? And you right. know the margin usage for those options. So then you have this cash that you're using portfolio uh, portable alpha or return stacking to create a capital efficient environment. But most people don't have that ability. So when people are just trying to let's say construct a portfolio of just like ETFs or mutual funds, they have what Chris call like really coined the term of the dead cash problem is like you're using all cash for those investments, but those cat all of those investments are very capital efficient, but you're not getting any of that capital efficiency, which is fine, but that's why the returns are not as sexy as people hope they are. And so and then to your point about leverage on leverage on leverage that people have to worry about is the way to think about it is like yes, Leverage on leverage when you have highly correlated items is a terrible idea. And almost every fund that ever blew up used a lot of leverage on short volatility assets. But if you can combine short volatility with long volatility or what we call uh, offense plus defensive assets, and you have that structural negative correlation, you're actually reducing the risk. And to give you an example of this is like we have to post margin with like our FCMs, right? And let's just say hypothetically to be long S&P beta, you needed 10% margin, right? And for, let's say, put options, you need another 10% margin. So you need 20% margin, right? Well, the FCM crosses those positions for us and go, oh, you guys are less risky. We actually only require 5 to 10% margin. And then we're sitting on all this cash to make up for that. So this is the, the ideas of the capital efficiency and why um, using capital efficiency, return stacking, portable alpha, leverage, whenever you want to call it, in a more prudent way where you have structurally negatively correlated items, it's a way to create a safer portfolio than using leverage on, you know, just long beta or, or short volatility. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that, uh, and just to kind of float an idea, and I don't know if you've thought sure. about this, because like, for instance, the nice thing about being able to allocate internally to an ETF, right, and still in-house, and I can mm -hmm. essentially margin that ETF to, right. to my option trade or whatever. Whereas with an external allocation, right, you've sent the cash somewhere else. Now, granted, you've mentioned, for example, cockroaches, you know, let's just call it 2x leverage for simplicity. So if I allocated half of my portfolio to cockroach, I'm getting a full 1x notional of my net liquidity to your exactly. strategy. Now, exactly. let's just say, for instance, and, and, and assuming I knew what I was doing and because I'm and I want the margin in my account and I want the cash in my account for like doing other strategies, right? Futures or whatever it is. You know, has have you ever been approached or been asked for like to increase the capital efficiency? Could you do a bucket or have a separate sleeve that it's four or five x so that we only need to allocate ten percent or twenty percent of our cash? Right. A again, assuming you know what you're doing, but like because right now I think the name of the game is is the capital efficiency and the return stacking because like 
I, for instance, I, I like the ideas that you guys have. And, and I think part of my MO, you know, even though I'm a podcast oriented to retail traders, I, I don't wouldn't even say retail traders at this point. I almost think like I'm teaching people to be like mini portfolio managers, right? I, I have mm -hmm. a lot of episodes on portfolio construction. And again, I have guests like you because I want to kind of broaden the horizon and know that, you know, even if you like self-directed investing or trading, part of that, sure, you can do your own stuff, but educating and learning about other stuff that's out there, there's value there and outsourcing that expertise, right? So it's fine to allocate different pots, right? But again, back to that question, like, is that something that's ever come up? Like, hey, I would love to put some money with, you know, your strategy, but I still need some cash. So could you have like a little yeah. more leverage so we can kind of get that efficiency? Sure. We can go, uh, I'm happy to go deep into the weeds on this stuff. And I think you and I have done this privately before about how to structure all this stuff. But like one of the problems is with that is yes and no is the answer, the short answer. And because a lot of our managers, their minimums are anywhere between five and $50 million, right? This is why we created this product for ourselves because Taylor and I didn't have $50 million to build this ourselves. But if we could aggregate other like-minded investors, we could all access these products, right? So to actually get a leveraged version of our product, we've looked into it before, but you would need a minimum of $50 million. And then we create a fund of one or an SMA for the actual product and the structure. So it's possible, but you'd need $50 million to do so. So once again, these are the issues and these are like the structural impediments to creating products like we do. So maybe in the future with enough yeah. AUM, like, like you, you've, you know, the idea is just, again, like structural or logistical kind of limitations is what it sounds yeah, and, like. And, and to us too, like we we're okay with sitting on all that cash because one, we're, we're leveraging up a little bit. But what I talked about combining the liquid and the illiquid is we are moving towards that over the next few years of a cockroach 2.0, where we build ensembles of the illiquid asset classes as well. Oh, so wow. we know we're going to do that in-house for people anyway. So that's what we're working towards as well. So, and then, and then to your point is like, there are very, very, very few people that understand capital efficiency. And we're already like, our stuff is so weird, so esoteric, so complex. You know, we're finding those just, you know, one out of a thousand people that like what we do or understand what we do. If you did a, a much more leveraged version, I'm not sure, you know, people say they understand it until they see the, the the variance of that return stream, right? That's what everybody says. But, and by the way, this is not disparaging retail. This is institutional. By the way, one of my, my definitely bugbears is like, there's no difference. There's no smart money, dumb money. There's no, you know, retail stupid and institutional is smart. No, people are people and institutions are the exact same as retail. Like do not get it twisted at all. And part of that is at the institutional level, is a lot of times they'll go, they actually want a delevered fund. They don't understand capital efficiency at an institutional level. They go, do you, ha they, do you have a vol, a single digit vol version? And I'm like, you realize that you're doubling your fees, right? Per return and they, per unit of volatility. They do you know, not I understand it I at all. I heard you say, I don't know if it was you or someone else, but that, that exact same point, it must've been you, it must've been on parts of Venge or something, but that- yeah, it, It's either point. me or Rodrigo, because Rodrigo hates this too, but it's like all the time we have these conversations and it just happened like in the last 10 to 20 years, because historically, if you go back to look at like- um, it was really, uh, by the way, this is actually one of the one of the impetuses or inspirations for us calling it mutiny funds is, you know, the CTAs in the 60s and 70s are known as swashbuckling pirates. These guys were running like 40 to 80 vol. Like to them, you were a wimp if you ran 20 vol. But now all the capital allocators go, they want less than 10 vol. And because it's just like it's saving their seat, right? Like it's a CYA to cover, you know, cover your ass for their job. 
is if they have less than a 10 vol, you know, they're not going to get fired for that. They're going to hopefully clip that coupon, but they just don't understand capital efficiency. Whenever I talk to institutions, I, I talk to them about capital efficiency. They're not interested at all. They just want a, a low vol product. You know, and another thing, and maybe I heard this on Corey's podcast because he has like allocators on there sometimes. The idea that allocators, they might understand all the pieces, but they like to kind of put them together themselves as opposed to getting one product that has all the pieces. And I don't know if it's like a just a, I don't even know if it's transparency or just they like to feel like they're doing something. I don't know right. that. <laughs> yeah, so, so we 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 put ourselves in a hard spot, right? Like because unaccredited retail can't buy a product, right? I talk to institutions all the time. We, we're accidentally like this nexus of the vol space because like I said, we, we invest in 14 managers. We track another 30 to 40. Like I know all the big players in the vol space. But then I talk to institutions, pensions and endowments all the time. And just like you said, they want to choose their own adventure. And even though they know, you'd be shocked how little they know about, about volatility trading or Greeks even. Like, I don't know how they got their MBAs. Like, it's shocking to me. Um, but they all the time, right? They want to choose their own adventure. So even though I'd be like, look, we built the best vol product for you. It'll give you a beta to vol. They're not interested, right? Because they want to build their own. And so I, I try to help them build their own, you know, choose their own adventure style. But they they really don't get it either. And so we're in this weird spot. We're like, we can't really help unaccredited retail where we are because the way we wanted to build this for capital efficiency and having very sophisticated strategies, you can't stuff those into an ETF or a mutual fund due to the constraints, the regulatory constraints. Institutions aren't looking to allocate to us because they want to choose their own adventure. So we have this very narrow sweet spot of very sophisticated accredited retail clients that really understand what we do, which are very, very low percentage of people on the planet. You touched on a point I was just about to ask, because uh, I was going to ask why uh, you chose the kind of private offering versus ETF. And you mentioned you can't, but I mean, I know now there's not with you know 20 different products, but like ETFs, you know, return stacking ETFs that have maybe bond stack with CT, uh, trend following. And those are replicators. But is that why there's a difference there that something like that can be an ETF versus something that you guys do? Is it just too many moving parts? Because I know with ETFs, there's the whole... You no know, creation redemption. I mean, could you do like a mutual fund, which at least it's once a day? Yeah, you could do the the closest you could get was is creating an interval mutual fund. And the way those work is like you have liquid daily liquidity on the way in, but then quarterly you can only redeem like five to ten percent of your funds. Oh, really? Okay. So yeah, so that that would be the way to structure that is like you could potentially stuff what we do into like an interval mutual fund. The issue with mutual funds and ETFs is like you're saying that the daily nav. But then on the ETF side, you need market makers or ADs, right. APs that like make the markets in there. And so what you have, and this is no disparagement amongst my friends that do any sort of tail risk hedging ETFs. I mean, Mazel Tov, they're, they're trying to do really complex things. And I'm glad they're bringing those products to market. And it raises awareness for all of us. But you have to do very, very vanilla option strategies. And they're transparent. So to find a manager that wants to do a vanilla transparent option strategy as an overlay is very difficult. I see. Yeah. And that sounds like, especially for cockroach, just there's a whole bunch of moving parts. So yeah, market making is going to be like a nightmare. I no, guess. it wouldn't happen. I see. Um, And and lastly, and this is a, a, a kind of pet topic of mine. I know you mentioned this a few times, but, and uh, you know, the idea, and this is kind of the driving philosophy behind something like the cockroach fund and having all the different streams, right? The idea, and you mentioned you know, Shannon's demon and volatility tax. Is that a topic that, how did that, come into you know your headspace or is that something you've always been kind of a student of and because for me like I, I used to you know so I've been selling options for a while but there there was a time where for instance I 
I didn't believe in using stops, for instance. And and obviously mm. that's not good when you're selling convex instruments, right? Because you know, I believe that, you know, the 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 edge of options, if you believe there is it's it's kind of at entry and you want to let it play out. And I was always focused on kind of the return stream of a, a single sequential trade as opposed to looking at a book of trades or trying to scale up a strategy, you know, because the math of geometric returns is very different than the math of arithmetic returns when you just consider mm -hmm. the sequence, right? And so that took me down that whole rabbit hole. Um, and, and and so I've heard you mention Shannon Seaman a couple of times. So it's interesting yeah. to see how that... Uh, um, yeah, I want to say it was somewhere in the mid, like a 2000, like somewhere between 2005 and 2009. Um, I can't remember. Do you know when uh, Fortune's Formula came out? I don't that book. I, I want to say it was 2005 ish, but fortune formula is a phenomenal book. Um, but there's just one paragraph in there, right? Like at the end of a chapter, if I remember correctly, but fortune's formula is about, um, a lot of professors and everything that we're working on the side, whether it's Ed Thorpe and Claude Shannon, they're trying to like beat roulette, beat blackjack. And they were playing around with all these ideas. Uh, but there's a paragraph in the end of one of the chapters where I think Claude Shannon was giving a lecture at MIT where he talked about Shannon's demon. And it was just one paragraph. And but at the end they go, you know, would this work? And you go, no, uh, you don't have that high of volatility to get like 100% return with a 50% drawdown. And the tr uh, transaction cost would eat you alive. And so that was all that was ever written about it. And that that bug has been in my brain ever since. It's also why in 2012, I actually found accidentally the uh, what we call the intramarket spread between uh, VIX and E-minis is because I was trying to find, because if you really take Claude Shannon, you know, Shannon was using cash and a volatile asset. But if you had two volatile negatively correlated assets, it's even like, it's even more powerful, right? And so looking at Kelly and looking at Claude Shannon, so then I was trying to find two negatively correlated assets that I could trade off against. I wouldn't, I mean, I, it was apples and oranges. I would have traded them, but it would, it just turned out it was, it was VIX uh, futures and, and E-mini futures. So that's how I got into that intermarket spread and then tried to figure out ratios between them and everything. It was just because of Claude Shannon and Shannon's demon. It is the most interesting thing. One of the most interesting things I've ever read. And then you can take it, um, you know, it's like one of those things. It's why I read books, right? I read hundreds of pages of books for that one sentence that could potentially change your life. And I read a ton. You know, I, you know that's what I'm, a lot of people know me for is I read way too much. But it's just about trying to find those unearth those nuggets. And that that one paragraph changed my life thinking about Shannon's demon. And then you can go down the rabbit hole of like Perondo's paradox. And you can start thinking about all sorts of crazy like cliquettes of where you could create, you know, uh, boundary barriers and all those sorts of things. But it just, yeah, it's just one of the more fascinating things I've ever read. Yeah, and then there's uh, people online like Matt Hollerbach. I think you're familiar with him. He yeah, I'm good friends with Matt. Yeah, 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 and uh, I've read his work, and it's interesting because like even the idea of your stocks and volatility uh, portfolio can kind of elicit that effect. Like I've I've done these like it, I I did a, like a, a short study where like I I put a return stream that's like a bunch of small returns and then one big drop right and but it drops back to zero. And then I did another return right. that's like a lot of bleed and all of a sudden a big spike, right? This is like a tail hack where you bleed for 10 years. And so they both end at zero. But if you combine the two and you're basically balancing, yes. the effect is essentially non-zero. So like one minus one is not zero. And so like things like that, it, it kind of blows my mind sometimes. And then that's why I think um, I was wondering, like, do you look at like for cockroach, do you guys look at, um, do you do any kind of rebalancing or how does that work in terms of like, and do, because we, we run like a, multi-strategy ensemble as well. And it, we, we'll look at, because you know, we track each separately and we're like, okay, the mm -hmm. individual return of each one, right? One plus one plus one 
is three, but then the actual portfolio return is like 3.2. So there's something there that's a little bit more because of the zig and zag between you know the, the various parts. And like, again, like something, <laughs> you're getting something from nothing seemingly. So that's always yeah. kind of interesting. Well, uh, there's so many things in there. Uh, one, there's all these old tropes in, in vol space that um, if you're long volatility, you slowly bleed to death before you make any money. Right. And if you're short volatility, you make a bunch of money, but then you blow up and you die. And then so only relative value vol managers stay around. But like to your point, we've combined relative value, short vol, long vol, all of those things combined. Because like you said, it, it creates this portfolio effect. And it's this emergent property at the portfolio effect. And I say emergent property, and that's a fancy way of saying, I don't know, right? It's like dark matter in space or whatever. Everybody uses emergent properties it's with consciousness because they just don't know. It's another thing that uh, I argue with Corey about all the time is, you know, the guys that resolve with Rodrigo and Adam, you know, they'll talk about the rebalancing premium. And Corey's like, it's not a rebalancing premium. It's a diversification premium. I'm like, okay, semantics. But like, like you said, it creates this magical um, extra return stream through rebalancing. It, and, you know, I'll let Corey argue his side all he wants, but functionally, like, or the way people look at it at a, at a, at a high level, that's what it creates. So to your point is, when Harry Brown created his permanent portfolio, he used rebalancing bands. So it was 25% each of the asset classes. And if any of those got outside of 10%, then he'd rebalance. So if they got down to 15% or th up to 35 and that, that's when he'd rebalance. And what that worked out to historically over decades was they were, you were rebalancing like every 1.6 years. And so I actually prefer rebalancing bands because it allows you some of that wiggle room. Cause like, as you know, if you rebalance too much, um, you know, it's it's a mean reversion strategy and you might be chopping yourself to death if you have a trending environment. And it's hard to know a priori if an asset class is trending or mean reverting. So those are kind of the trade-offs when you're doing rebalancing. Um, but what we do functionally, because of the way we're structured, is we allow our clients monthly liquidity. And so that means that the first every month, we're rebalancing the entire portfolio and we're rebalancing all our trading levels with our managers. And so maybe it's not ideal, right? Maybe quarterly rebalancing would be better. Daily rebalancing might be better. I would prefer rebalancing bands, but it's a function of, of running you know money for other people and the function of the regulatory environment and providing all these things is like we have to rebalance on a monthly basis. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. You know what's interesting? Because we, we do the same thing and... um. I used to have a fund where we blended like two index ETFs, but when we get inflows, we would just buy the one that's down for that month because right. it happens to be less. And I feel like something there, it made the the whole more than the sum of the parts because if you track the return of the individual assets, it's one thing, but then the return of the portfolio seemed to be like a little bit higher. So again, I don't know if it's because of that rebalancing, but it seemed like it squeezed out a little bit of extra juice. So that, that's always yeah, interesting. No, it, it should. No, that's the way to do it too, is like to to buy the the asset that's in, in drawdown. And we are we are also working on, because it, it does drive me nuts intra-month, you know, with these big moves in S&P that we are looking at also like daily or weekly rebalancing with bands intra-month, at least on like our long ball plus stocks position where we, we have been in research mode and working on that for years. Cause like that does kind of drive me nuts when you have like, it moves 10% and then reverts right back like mid month that, that kind of, it tends to annoy, annoy the crap out of me. But the, the other part of what you're saying about the drawdown and adding to it, even before I learned about Claude Shannon's demon was I think a lot of people maybe get their start, you know, either maybe in technical trading, like they read like a UN Sinclair or something like that. Right. And they want to figure out how to be an option trader, but most people in general, 
tend to learn about markets from reading Warren Buffett, right? And they become value investors. But then to me on the fringes, there was this other other cohort that came up like when I did, I'm 44 years old. So I read uh, Market Wizards and those were like my Bibles as a teenager. And, and part of reading Market Wizards, and it's all about these CTA trend followers, is I used to just go, why wouldn't you basically trend follow their nav, right? Like if like Shannon's Demon, I figured this out before I learned about Shannon's Demon. I was like, as CTA is going to, into a drawdown, if you believe in them, you should be adding. And as they're making new profits, you should be taking, you know, taking profits. And that would one, smooth out your equity curve, but also, as you know, improve your Kager over time. So I was already thinking about that back then, because like you said, it's better to give it, you know, give money into that draw, that assets that's drawing down, assuming that asset isn't trending towards zero, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's the whole, that's the whole rub. And you never know. And, and you tend to panic and go, I don't know, is this the time that it's really going to lose? You know, be, it may be down 20%, but what if it's down 40, 50, 60? Well, Jason, it's, uh, an hour has gone by very quickly and, uh, it's it's been really fun to to chat and again i think a lot of ideas that uh you speak to kind of jive with the kind of stuff you know that i think about and you know my funds a lot smaller but the way we structure it and the things we have to deal with is very similar so it's uh something i can really relate with um any closing comments you want to give to the audience otherwise you can just say you know where people can find you or anything you want to point them towards I don't know. I don't have any uh, advice or point. Maybe floss daily. I don't know. Uh, but you can, you can find <laughs> me. Find at, uh, fine then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can find us at uh, mutinyfund.com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at, at Jason C Buck. Uh, my partner's at Taylor Pearson Me. Um, and then otherwise, yeah, I'm on. We do a mutiny investing podcast where, uh, especially the first twenty episodes, are really volatility centric. Uh, if you really want to geek out about volatility, volatility managers. And then on uh, Fridays, Corey Hostin and I do a live show on YouTube called uh, Pirates of Finance. Um, and that's at 3 Eastern, noon Pacific on Fridays on YouTube. 3 Eastern. Okay. I don't think I've caught one live yet. I was listening. Oh, to you're missing out, Dave. <laughs> David, you're missing out. So this is hilarious. Corey hates this. But uh, one day we were joking around about the people in our comment section. We're like, what should we call you guys? Like, you know how all the like celebrities have like their followings? And somebody threw out the idea of called Booty Crew because yeah. of the whole Pirates of Finance. And Corey's like, I'm never going to say that. So it just stuck. And so the Booty Crew, the comment section on the live show, and that's the only time you can see it is on the live show, is hilarious. I highly recommend watching the live show. It's it's hard, you know, appointment viewing these days. But the live show, the comment section is so good. And it's either hilarious or people will start arguing and deep diving about topics we're talking about. So you can learn a lot, actually, from the comment section as well. Is there a reason you guys do three um, just to catch the market close or is some commentary or was that just a arbitrary? Uh, so we originally wanted to do four o'clock, but our but our homies at Resolve do Resolve Riffs live at four o'clock. So we didn't want to step on their toes. So that's why we did three. So we're just trying <laughs> to front run them. Okay. And I guess uh, just uh, get on YouTube, sign and follow your the account and should be able to catch that that live yeah, broadcast yeah pirates finance um you can find us there like i said and then muni investing podcast we do it both video and audio um and then yeah you can find us on twitter at, at mutiny fund or mutinyfund.com um and then i'm jason seabuck at twitter please yeah give me a shout out ask any questions happy to help in any way all right well jason it's, it's been a blast and uh thanks again for uh taking some time to join us today thanks david